Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. So let's go back to the development of the field. You know, you watched the ACOA movement come about. You came to realize there are parts of you that that belong to you. You continue to spread the word. The, the uh, field expanded and exploded. What, what comes after that? You know, as a publisher, I, we used to sit around and we used to think about, you know, what's going to come next? So we would know what to publish, you know, what to do conferences around. And we did that sort of uh, crystal ball discovery, mm-hmm. you know, quite well for a good number of years in the, in the recovery world. But we came to a point where we didn't really know what was going to be next. We kicked around the ideas around what we meant by spirituality, but that never really, you know, it was very difficult to define that without being, you know, confused around spirituality versus religion and what is spirituality really. So we kind of, you know, lost that trail. But now I realize today what really became next is what we're focused on today in the world of recovery, and that's trauma. You know, mm-hmm. today, everybody, you know, in in this field, I think, now talks about trauma. And all the things that we've been talking about regarding addiction, I think we recognize today all of it emanates from some form of childhood trauma. Survival skills. Survival skills, exactly. You know, and we can talk about big T trauma and, you know, little t trauma, but, you know, most of us, I think the vast majority, I haven't met too many people that were not in some way scarred or harmed by some kind of childhood trauma. And I want to put a note in here because, you know, number one, uh, we all grew up with this idea, blame mom, blame dad. And, you know, they, they didn't do it right. And they screwed me up. And I don't really think at this point, in, in, to Gary's point in terms of where we've landed, I don't blame the people who raised me. I truly believe they best, did the best they could. They loved me. They did everything. They gave me everything that they had to offer. It just wasn't enough. It, and I mean, it wasn't what I needed. It wasn't what, a, what any child would need. 
but I don't blame them. I don't put responsibility. We're not in the parent bashing business. We are, uh, when Gary talks about this, it's about self-understanding. It's about coming to peace with myself that I wasn't born bad, but that I have acted out in all these ways and hurt people because it's what I learned in what you might say is an inadequate upbringing. And that is where we've moved, I think, from blaming to more accepting, if you will. And I appreciate your saying that about it present because, and when you say big T, big T trauma is war. Big T trauma is watching someone die in front of you when someone shot them or a huge car accident. Little T trauma is more you were left alone and no one was there when you were seven. Or you heard mom and dad screaming all the time. Or as Gary said, I, I watched family, I watched dad or grandpa be a womanizer, but we never told grandma about it. I mean, those little pieces that add up to uh, the dysfunction in a child who often either becomes an addict or an ACOA. Precisely. But um, I wonder, what else do you want to say to people who grew up in, in small T traumatic environments and find maybe not addiction, but the people that they get involved with or the, the things they are willing to tolerate in a relationship? Well, what else would you want to say about that? I guess what I want to say we haven't touched on. I, I think, honestly, I think we, we've touched on so much. And again, it goes without saying, but I think very important to recognize that although much of the things that I've talked about, you know, coming out of the ACOA movement, you know, relates to alcoholism, you know, is to realize how far really we've come in a relatively short time. Believe me, people 40 years ago did not talk about food addiction, did not talk about sex addiction for sure. Well, let's say it. No one talked about anything. You know, we all had the perfect family and hid behind it. Gambling addiction, shopping addiction. I mean, all these things can become really problematic if mm -hmm. you can't control, you know, the use. It's not just about substances. It's about behavioral, behavioral issues. So is to recognize that we really have come a long, long way in our understanding of self-awareness. You know, I get a little um, ticked off sometimes, you know, when when people talk about, you know, how we, we haven't learned much or we haven't, you know, made strides. That's not true. We have made mm -hmm. great strides. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would like to think, you know, 40 years from now, you know, what, what could be better is for people to talk more, to listen more, mm -hmm. to, particularly to listen. Well, and I want to say the, these are the gifts of people like Oprah who brought these stories into our living rooms. And I'm not talking about the, the shows where, you know, two women who were, one was the girlfriend and one was the wife would beat each other up. But I'm talking about people really telling their stories. And I yeah. think that that is what, you know, that is the history of people and passing on stories. And when your family looks good or everything's fine or you don't talk about it, we don't learn. And I think part of what's happened in the last 40 years is people have come forward and said, I, I'm not so worried about what people think. In fact, I believe that my opening my mouth and saying difficult things are going to help other people. And that has been a huge shift, the world I grew up in, and certainly Gary was, you don't talk about it, you don't let anybody know about it. I think Bernate Brown talks about, you know, if you were the child of an alcoholic or a mentally ill parent, no one would come over to your house. 
I mean, no one wanted to come over to my house and play because they knew that I had the crazy family, but no one talked about it. So anyway, I hear that legacy and and the change that's occurred. I I just want to add one thing about uh, storytelling, because you you made the point so well, you know, that stories is really how we learn. And you mentioned, uh, you know, the phenomenon which became Chicken Soup for the Soul, which we were just very fortunate, let's say, to be the publisher of because it turned into an absolute phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But, you know, why did it become the phenomenon that it was? The reason was stories. You know, these were just a collection of stories on a particular subject, be it, you know, women or adolescents or horse lovers or whatever it was. I mean, there were, let's see, 200 million chicken soup books were sold worldwide. And by the way, just to put a put a, a, a note in that, 200 million is about half the population in the United States. That's how many people wanted to read those stories. And, and I, I really appreciate, Gary, you know, this is how we get to Alcoholics Anonymous and Cocaine Anonymous and Marijuana, is that's what the chicken soup thing did, is it divided up the stories into the populations that most related to them. Yes. And when you think about it in terms of the recovery field, you mm-hmm. know, we didn't talk about anything other than probably, you know, back in the days of alcoholism, we talked about Skid Row and mm-hmm. we talked about bums. My dad would say that's a bum, right? You know, the bums of the, of the streets. And we would talk about, you know, the wealthy business people who could hide it. And what we talk about now is, you know, the gay lesbian community. We talk about older uh, people. We talk about gender differences, which are enormous in terms of treatment. Uh, We talk about adolescence. Well, now, okay, now you got me saying something I want to say, which is I'm going to play devil's advocate, you know, and people say, oh, my God, everything's an addiction. Someone's watching TV too much. Somebody at Christmas time spends too much money or at the holidays. Somebody, you know, just can't stay on a diet. Everybody's an addict, 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 addict. And, you know, you say that you like to see it develop and evolve, but there are many folks who say, you know, enough already. Like, you know, you just want to enjoy an evening. You want to watch TV regularly. All of a sudden you're an addict. I'm a, I'm a, a Netflix addict or whatever it is. How do you, What do you say to those people? Negative consequences. You have to keep reminding yourself when you you look at these behaviors or these substances, if you're doing something in moderation, chances are, you know, there's not a great deal of problems attached to that behavior. But if you do too much of it, if you watch four or five hours of TV every night, uh, seven days a week, uh, and you have two small children at home, probably not a good idea. Probably there are going to be some negative consequences. If you go to Las Vegas or you go gambling uh, once a year, uh, you know, and play slot machines, I don't think anybody's going to come down at you for that. But if you can't not go to Las Vegas, and if you can't not tear yourself away from the machines, and if you can't not lose more than you agreed with yourself to, to lose, or if you shop incessantly and you can't not not shop and you can't afford it consequences what are the con if there are no negative consequences i don't think anybody's going to come down on you 
And just to say it, most of the sex addicts that I work with at Seeking Integrity, when I ask them, why are you here? They will inevitably say, well, I want to be a better person, or I just realized how bad my problem was. But when you dig a little deeper, they're there because their spouse left. They're right. there because their kids have become dysfunctional. They're there because they lost a job or it became public that they had arrest or whatever. People, nobody comes to treatment, in my experience, to grow personally. Um, maybe just a very few of us. But people come in because they're in a crisis. And you might think or say, well, they're just going in there to have people feel sorry for them. Or they're just going in there because they want to get out of their crisis and they want to tell this person, their, their spouse, well, see how sick I was? But the truth is, and just to say this, I don't care why people come to treatment. I don't care what brings them into, I want to say, into our arms. What I care about is what they do when they're there. Mm -hmm. What are they willing to grab onto? Because everybody comes to treatment because they want to duck out underneath something. And by the way, Gary, I'll say to you, one of my favorite statements to a client is, you know, they'll say, oh, I, I, you know, I just came because I want to be a better person. I just came because I wanted to work out my, issue, my issues. And I'll say to them, well, why were you six months ago? Why were we here a year ago? Well, my, my husband just left me. Well, we just ran out of money. You know, it is that crisis, that consequence that, that like you said, it, it's the problem that arises that leads me to think I can't do this anymore. And we all have, um, we call people a high bottom and a low bottom. Some people, the crisis is reasonably minor and they wake up and they say no more. Other people, their life has to completely fall apart before they're willing to get help. And that really is individual to individual. So, Gary, I want to move on to the present. And, you know, here you are still here, still preaching the gospel, still helping people in so many ways like you are today and talking about today that it's moved on from alcohol and drugs to behavioral addictions, which, by the way, I think a lot of people still don't understand. You know, I can understand drinking, I can understand heroin, you know, whatever, that your body becomes adapted. But how can you be addicted to spending or sex? That doesn't make any sense. And I think that we are getting to a point where we can begin to understand that it is a brain issue and that all of these behaviors affect the way our brains function. And that leaves us doing things that other people would not be doing. But I want to move on to that topic in terms of sex addiction, which is you talked a lot about adult children of alcoholics, how they have a lot in common with addicts in general, except I think a big difference is that addicts are completely focused on themselves and children of alcoholics are completely focused on the other person. And that is, you know, the, the difference. So the addict is me, 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 and the, the family members affected is you, you, you. And neither one is a balance or, or healthy and it creates problems. But let's move on to sex addicts. We recently looked at a book. I handed you a copy about adult children of alcoholics. And you can find that book just by going on Amazon or wherever you get your books and typing in adult children of sex addicts by Dr. Ken Adams. But I gave you that book specifically because you have this history of watching the adult children of alcoholics movement start and save so many lives. And now you're looking at a book that's talking about adult children of sex addicts, which who would think, you know, how could that? And yet I heard you say, I watched grandpa do this and I knew not to talk about it. And I listened to the, I saw the so-and-so looking at porn and then it was left in a pile on the table that mm -hmm. has to affect children in so many ways. So you tell me as you begin, as you begin to look at and hear about at this stage, us looking at adult children of sex addicts, let's turn the conversation toward that. 
what are some of the similarities that you're seeing in that population? And then let's talk about the differences. So what do you see in adult children of sex addicts and porn addicts and all of that? What is similar to adult children of alcoholics or drug addicts? Okay. Um, for, let me preface anything I say about this with the book that you referred to. The book itself is called A Light in the Dark, The Hidden Legacy of Adult Children of Sex Addicts. It was written by Ken Adams, who I know has been a guest of yours. And his focus has been enmeshment, which, you know, that's some of that little T trauma that profoundly affects, and I think all sex addicts, by the way, they come in and they see how uh, their lack of separation from a parent has created some of those problems with intimacy right. in their adult lives. But you were saying about the the book that, that uh, Dr. Adams wrote. Yes, I think very important because, again, I don't want to come across in any way, shape, or form as an expert on in this subtopic. But that makes you the best guest because, you know, not a lot of folks are really, you know, experts in any of this. They're just living their lives and wanting to understand how it affects them. So what are you seeing? Well, um, I was very, very interested in the book, and I recommend it to anybody who's interested in this topic. You and I both know Pat Carnes came up with, uh, you know, Out of the Shadows, I don't know how many years ago. 1978. Wow. <laughs> you know, and, and that brought sex addiction out in the open probably for the very first time. And now here we are in 2000 and where are Whatever. we? Whatever. 2023. <laughs> And we come up with a book on, you know, adult children of sex addicts. So very, very interesting when you put it in that context. So I'm so glad that there is a book now that does talk about adult children of sex addicts. So what Ken Adams and his co-authors talk about in the book as the characteristics, mm -hmm. uh, the first one I think probably is the most important, is adult children of sex addicts carry shame about their sexuality and are often confused about appropriate sexual behavior for others and themselves. You mean someone might accept things in someone else because it became acceptable in their own family, but they didn't even know that it was wrong. Exactly. Number two, uh, and I'm reading directly from the book, adult children of sex addicts are often uncomfortable with their bodies and gender and may go to extremes to compensate. They might purposely make themselves unattractive to others or overvalue being attractive. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of this, you know, either or. More self-esteem, again, a self-esteem issue. I'm not worthwhile. I need to be different. I won't be loved unless, unless this, that, or the other thing. Yeah. What else? Adult children of sex addicts can either be uncomfortable with physical touch or feel an insatiable need for it. Again, you know, the either or. Mm -hmm. Adult children can be extreme in their sexual attitudes, either too permissive or too judgmental. Mm -hmm. So there's this confusion, right? There's uh, this constant confusion. Mm -hmm. Adult children of sex addicts can become sexually compulsive or sexually avoidant, either mm -hmm. se sexualizing experiences not meant to be sexual or retreating and escaping when it's actually safe and healthy to be sexual. And I want to say something about that. With, with all the addictions, um, at least all the behavior addictions, we see kind of a binge purge where someone eats too much or they stop eating or someone is having too much sex 
or they're not being sexual. And I think mm-hmm. I've said before, I go to a 12-step meeting for sex addicts and someone says, I have 12 years of recovery. And I think, wow, that's amazing. Tell me about that. And they'll say, well, I haven't had sex in 12 years. And I think, well, that isn't any better than having too much or doing it the right. wrong way. It's still not living life. Exactly. These, I think, are mostly, mostly really differences because I think they're mostly, yeah, I, th- I think these are mostly individualized to sex addicts. So adult children of sex addicts often view someone's sexual interest as a sign of love or as a mm-hmm. violation, although neither mm-hmm. one may be accurate. Mm-hmm. Extremes. Extremes can be drawn to and overvalue the intensity, risk, drama, and sexual excitement in an intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. Boy, can I relate to that. <laughs> Adult children unknowingly lack healthy value systems and sexual boundaries. And again, if you grew up not, you know, I think of the family that grows up with porn everywhere, you know, a child who didn't would probably follow the culture. They would understand it's not to be looked at until a certain age and why and they're not allowed to, you know, that's not okay. You're just, you know, 11, but the family where that is extremely permissive and it's all over the place uh, and no one says anything about it. Well, that's a child who doesn't learn what a boundary is and what's safe and not safe. So a lot of the stuff that we're talking about isn't trauma. Like someone hit me. It is that, that the situation I grew up, grew up in lacked a healthy vision for, for what a healthy person should be. And I just assume that's the way the world is. It's almost like the kid who gets hit and says, well, I'll punish my kids like that because it was a good thing that dad punished me. And they don't realize the harm they're causing by uh, beating the crap out of their kid. So similarities, similarities. Well, you know, the the primary common characteristics of the adult child of an alcoholic really revolve around don't talk, don't trust, and don't feel. I mean, they're, they're the three biggies that sort of stand out in the world of ACOAs. So I don't know myself, but you will know better than I, you know, how those three characteristics, you know, apply. Well, I I certainly know in these families, you know, uh, spouses get gaslighted. There's nothing going on. Everything's fine. Why do you keep bothering me? Why are you suspicious of me? And eventually they either just stop asking or they give up uh, on the hope that there will be meaningful connection, we adapt to situations that are intolerable when we love somebody. And I think that's universal. You know, if I live with an alcoholic or I live with a sex addict, you know, I live with them long enough and I love them enough. I just tolerate and manage things that I never would have tolerated had I met them and saw this at the beginning. Right. Right. How do you think that alcoholism and growing up with that versus growing up with, with cheating and porn and all that. How do you think that affects love and intimacy in, in both situations? Or you don't? <laughs> all more I can say about it is I can only imagine that given porn today, that this is going to get more and more and more attention. And I think that I'm assuming that we're going to learn a whole lot more about how children are going to be affected in the next, you know, when they become adult from this, you know, the porn generation that we're living in. I think I heard, I think maybe from Carnes not long ago that I can't remember the percentage, but it was a significant percentage of school children 
watch porn when they're doing while they're doing their homework. Well, many parents would say, no, 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 my, not my kid, but they don't. Many parents would have said that about smoking pot, you know, not my kid, but there they are, because that's what the culture is doing. And right. let's not forget that, you know, in, in my day and Gary's day, we had to go somewhere and buy something and bring it home. And it was a magazine or a book. You're just one click away from a whole world. That's what I'm saying. I mean, and given that you're just a click away from it all, and given that the uh, I'm told that the porn industry is the you know fastest growing industry or has mm. been one of the top two or three uh, fastest growing industries of of any you know in the world uh, over the last uh, decade or so, I can I can only imagine. You know, and with AI becoming more and more of a reality. Yeah, you can create your own porn in about 10 seconds or less. So, I mean, what's it what's it already done, you know, to, no, quote, normal relationships? Let's use the word healthy, because I'm never, and just to everybody, I'm not a normal. fan of normal, because Lord knows who what normal is, but healthy. Are people healthy? And I, well, I don't mean to correct you, Gary, or you know, no, I mean, about no, no, this way. No, but... You know, what? what is normal? That, that That's a good book title. <laughs> so, again, I, I can only imagine. I mean, the impact it's going to have on uh, what we have considered healthy relationships, dating, meeting, meeting people, uh, getting to know people, you know, how many mostly boys, but I'm assuming girls too, are going to have so much sex, uh, self-sex, uh, masturbation around pornography, they're not going to feel like they have a need to you That's know, already happening. Right. That they don't feel there are studies in Japan on population decline. And one of the things when they're interviewing young men uh, in particular is they say, well, you know, have you dated? Are you going out and being sexual? And they sing, say things like, well, you know, the porn is so great and I can game with my friends and I don't have to be bothered whether, you know, I might buy someone dinner and they don't, I want to have sex. And the porn guarantees that to me. And so it is what you're saying. I don't learn how to date. I don't learn how to build a relationship. I don't learn how to get someone from meeting them to sex because I haven't had those experiences. Or don't care, you know, and or don't care. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when we think about, you know, AI and, you know, what what changes, you know, it's going to bring to humanity, uh, Mm -hmm. relationships particularly, um, you know, we may be looking at a very, very, many, very different paradigms in terms of relationships and sexuality, you know, going forward. Are you saying I'm not going to be out of work anytime soon? I don't think so. I think you're, you're good to go. In fact, what, what you mentioned about Dr. Carnes, who certainly is a trailblazer and one of my role models and guides in this field, um, he said not that long ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago, when porn first became immediately available on, on the internet, he said, there's a tsunami coming. And he meant that there was a whole wave of young people who had been raised on, raised on porn at an age when they really were not even ready to understand what it meant. And like I said about normalizing, they learn at 11, all the sexual content, all this material, that's just how it is. By the way, you mentioned girls, and I want to say that girls do increasingly turn to porn. It's not that they're as visually stimulated as boys are necessarily, but they want to compare themselves. 
do I look like that? Is this what sex is supposed to be? How do I get a, a boy or a girl to desire me? And they're learning all kinds. And then they get involved with the porn and they get hooked on the porn. So they may come to it for different reasons. But let me assure you folks that girls often end up in the very same situation as the boys do, which means un- disconnected, not growing uh, developmentally in a way that they should, and then avoiding or being uncomfortable with or problematic related to intimacy and sexuality. Mm -hmm. It's all there and we're watching it play out. And I really want you to know, folks, that Gary and I, uh, we're not anti-sex. We're not anti-porn. We're not anti-alcohol. We're not anti any of it. It's about those people who get, who lose their lives to it. It is about what he said is dysfunction. It's about your life not working. Look, watch as much, gamble as much as you want, you know, have sex as much as you want, do whatever makes you happy if your world is working. But if you're doing things, whether any of those behaviors to the point where it is meaningfully causing consequences in your life, then we don't even judge the sex or the gambling. We judge you and we say, wow, you must be really broken. You must have a lot of issues to have lost yourself in this. You know, let's face it. Most people have a drink or maybe they have, you know, I don't want to say this, but, you know, a couple of men have gone to strip clubs who are married in case you didn't know about that. And they go and that's it. And maybe they feel bad about it or maybe they don't or they went during a, a work thing or a bachelor party or whatever is going on with the men or the women. But we're not talking about people in that category. We're talking about people who are engaging in their sexual behavior over and over and over again to the point where their relationships and, the th- and their families and their work and the things that did have more meaning to them have, have retreated into the background. Um, and of course, they're hiding and keeping secrets and all of that kind of thing. So what else, what else Gary, as we're getting ready to wrap up, what do you want to say to people, whether they grew up in this alcoholic situation, whether they grew up in these uh, problematic sexual situations, and here they are, they either know some of it or they just they find themselves affected in their own way by intimacy and relationship problems and sexuality. What message would you carry to the child of a sex addict that would be very similar to the message that you might bring to an adult child of a drug addict or an alcoholic? Information and help is available. Don't wait until it's too late. In other words, you just uh, talked about a particular scenario, and I couldn't agree more the way you put it. You know, nothing wrong with going to the strip club with a bunch of friends, you know, to celebrate a a birthday or anniversary or something like Mm -hmm. that. Nothing wrong with having a few drinks. But let's just say you go to the strip club, and let's just say you have more than a few drinks, and let's just say you jump in your car, and let's just say you have a terrible accident where there's three fatalities. You know, your life and the life of many, many others has been been affected. If you feel, you know, you have any you know, problems, inter- problems that are really, you know, stopping you from uh, feeling like you're having a, you know, a healthy existence. You know, recognize that there are a lot of people that have come before you that have had the same problems and a lot worse, and you can learn a lot. You just have, you know, you need to be open. You need to be open. You know, the the, the people that trouble me the most and frustrate me the most are the ones who I don't want to know about it. You know, 
you know, yes, you know, I my childhood wasn't perfect, but you know, yeah, I got beaten up occasionally, but you know, it didn't really hurt me that much. And uh, you know, yeah, you know, I don't really want to look at it. I don't want to spend my time. That frustrates me, uh, you know. And uh, denial is is the enemy. Your ego is an enemy. You know, Gary. Just to wrap up um, as we finish, because I think this is important is if I'm the wife or the child of an alcoholic, it is not that difficult today. Uh, Embarrassing, humiliating, depending on your community, but people will understand if you say, you know, I'm so embarrassed and so sad that my husband, my wife, my kid, my dad, they have a problem with drinking. I think that the culture and people understand those issues. They're not as judgmental as they were a long time ago. But If you're married to someone who has a sexual problem or you're the child of someone who has a sexual problem, it is so much harder to come forward and talk about this. And I wonder, and that is changing too, but you understand that when you talk about being open and, you know, it's much harder for people to be open and discuss these issues. Yes. Well, you you know, we're talking about stigma and stigma is, uh, you know, stigma is the problem. You know, and the stigma around alcoholism, again, 40 years ago, I mean, unbelievably different to what it is now. Like you see, like you say, you know, today in most circles, you can talk about, you know, your, your problem drinking. You can talk about alcoholism. You can talk about the accidents you've had as a result. So I know, you know, stigma and, you know, how it can change. And my prayer in the sex addiction world is that, you know, the stigma will be reduced, as I'm sure it already has, but probably has a a long way to go. I just was thinking about something that before we wrap up, I, I have a question and you may not have an answer to it, but I sure want the spouses to have a sense of this. If I am married to a alcoholic, it's not, it's personal in the sense that you're not doing this, you're not doing that, you're letting me down here, you're hurting us there, you're, you know, driving drunk, whatever it is. But it isn't, it isn't personal in the same way. Yes, it affects your life. Yes, it's humiliating. Yes, everything may be falling apart because that person's drinking. But Mm -hmm. you kind of know they didn't do that to you. They're not drinking because of you. You're because you're inadequate or you're not good enough. I mean, those are ACOA qualities, which is blaming myself. But when it comes to sex addiction, it's so personal. You know, you can't just say, oh, you're an addict. You, you can't help but think they cheated on me. They let me down. They were with someone else. Maybe they want to be with someone else more than me. I thought they loved me. This is the one I hear all the time. How could you love me and do this at the same time? So, I mean, how do you, how do the spouses come to terms with the personal part that you're, it's not just you're drinking, you're cheating on me. It's no, not just that you're, how, how did how can I help them? How can they help themselves become more open and comfortable or, or not take it so personally? You know, I say to the spouses, look, you know, they were doing this before they ever met you. They had this problem. They were doing it in their own lives or other people's lives. It's not about you, but it is so personal when someone's cheating. No, it's so great. It's betrayal. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I, I certainly don't have an answer for it. I can only say that I understand that, you know, how enormously difficult that is. Um, and, you know, I've experienced it, you know, as a man who has, uh, you know, betrayed uh, my partner more than once. Um, so I certainly understand it as the perpetrator. I mm-hmm. don't know it as the 
you know, as the person who's been betrayed, but I can only imagine, you know, uh, and I certainly would take it personally. And I can only, you know, imagine the hurt. So, you know, all I can hope for is that, you know, the, the person who's been betrayed, you know, avails themselves of the help and understanding that's available. But other than that, uh, I don't have any words of wisdom to, to make it less hurtful to make you feel less personal. And I just want to add to something we said at the very beginning, which is you can't fix this by yourself. You cannot put your shame down. You can't, it is so much easier. A lot of the people I work with, you know, we have free groups of seeking integrity. They're all online. I think we have 14 groups that people monitor and, uh, and that are run. And by the way, Gary, that is my service. If I can have 14 or 15 groups that people can stop in for free you know, as we've mm-hmm. said before, not everyone is ever going to be able to afford treatment or have the time or money for therapy, but they can learn in a whole bunch of places. And what I'm trying to say to you folks is what I really want you to understand is the shame goes down when you're not alone. The shame goes down about what this person did or who they are when you realize that somebody across the room in a 12-step meeting or in a support group that they've gone through this too. And just like the addict cannot resolve their issues on their own, the, the shame of being involved with an addict doesn't resolve by you're working on this on your, by yourself. You have to hear other people say, this hurt me. I went through this. This was incredibly painful. I feel violated. And, and that brings a certain, it takes away from the personal part. Because if it happened to you and it happened to me, then I'm not alone and I'm not the mm-hmm. worst person in the world. Mm-hmm. And so, and I want to finish by saying, Gary, that is what you have done. You have brought to us, whether it was through books or or articles or journals or conferences, you have brought people together to talk about this. And that, you know, honestly, to me, that would be my greatest legacy if I were you, as you've opened doors that people found a way to walk through. And for that, I am forever grateful to you. And I hope so many other people are as well. Is there anything you want to say to folks before we stop? Um, I'll say how what a wonderful man you are and how much you give. But is there anything you want to say uh, about the work that we're doing or your experience of recovery? Um, what else do you want to throw out there, if anything, before we stop? No, honestly, Rob, at this point, all I want to do is thank you uh, for the work that you do. Because, as you say, not everybody can you know, go to treatment for one reason or another. And there is so much uh, support available thanks to people like you and the work that you're doing. And it's certainly been my honor to be part of this field. I, it was not my uh, my life plan, my life my <laughs> life goal, but I just you know put one foot in front of the other, and here we are. And uh, I'm very pleased to uh, to spend this time with you and your audience. Thank you, and I know so many other people who don't have a sense of the history, understand that this didn't just start today. This has been an evolution of people like Gary coming forward and saying, I belong here. Let's bring other people in too. Um, Thank you, Gary Seidler, for being my friend, for being a carrier of the message. And, uh, and uh, I look forward to seeing those grandkids, you know, call you Pa and Papa G because that is what it's all about. That is. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. 
If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.